0: Good morning. I hope you guys are well. I have uh, one announcement here. Uh, so we're going we're looking at doing something a little different this year. Somebody came to us with an idea. Um, you know, over the years we've done... Uh, it's interesting because we've done a lot of different outreaches at different times. And one of the things in the 14 years we've been here is that everything seems kind of cyclical, meaning uh, something will work for a while and then it kind of won't. And then we we'll kind of switch. So somebody came to us and they said, Hey, I'm kind of interested in doing a... Uh, a Thanksgiving dinner, kind of going around the community, see who's interested. We're on Wednesday. The goal would be to do it Wednesday night uh, before Thanksgiving so that people that have family commitments and so forth would still be able to do that. So the idea is in its infancy. I do realize that we're halfway through October, uh, but we're looking for people that would be interested in in helping with that. It would be food prep, Um, I'm, you know, maybe pounding the payment to look for, see if uh, different stores might be interested in donating. Uh, then, you know, set up in here and clean up and so forth. So if you'd be interested on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving in volunteering to do a community meal and some outreach between now and then into the community uh, for invites and so forth, uh, there's a sign-up sheet, right? There's a sign-up sheet in the back, and you can sign up or see Dana or myself, and uh, we'll get you plugged in. But we're ju- at this point, we're trying to figure out, do we have enough volunteers to do it? And if we do, we'll probably soldier forward. Uh, But just let us know. All right, Romans chapter 2. Now, if you've been tracking with us or if you're uh, new with us this morning, we've been going through the book of Romans, and uh, we started a few weeks ago, and we're still in this section. It's the, uh, some people might have labeled it the bad news section of Romans. I think it's just kind of the truth section of Romans, and it's the foundation for the gospel. And what what Paul is going to be doing, what we've looked at so far and what we'll continue to look at until uh, chapter 3 is essentially this theme verse, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what he's going through right now in chapter 1, remember, just by way of review, he has his greetings in the beginning, and then he begins to talk about uh, a people, it's all in past tense, and he talks about people that didn't have the law, uh, didn't necessarily have a revelation, obviously not of Jesus, he wasn't on the scene yet. Uh, But they knew things about God, namely His uh, eternal power and His divine nature. And that that when people understood those things about Him and knew them, literally evaluated them and found them wanting, actually is what he says there, that when people, human beings, discovered things about God and did, did not acknowledge the things that they did know about Him, that that caused a darkening in their hearts. And this is not, as we've been discussing, it's important to realize this is normal human behavior, not normal in the sense of acceptable, but it's how we all operate. When we take truth, whatever truth that might be, it could be you shouldn't be rude to people, it could be Jesus is Lord, whatever truth, when we take truth and we shove it away from ourselves, we reject it, then we have to have something to replace it, right? Right? In this case, he says that these people of old, that they made idols, that they made uh, figurines and things like that of, of uh, uh, fish and um, quadrupeds, anything with four legs, of humans, that they made these idols. They made their own gods, and then they worshiped them. And the, the interesting thing about humans is we always, it's the pattern we always take. We have something that we want. It's, it shouldn't be... Uh, too surprising that all of the ancient gods, it doesn't matter if it's Roman mythology or Greek mythology or uh, uh, Native American mythology or any, any, any kind of people group that has their own mythology, it's, it's fascinating that it all boils down to I sacrifice something, whether it's my child or it's a banana or whatever it might be, I give something to this god in return for something. But the returns never change. It's always sacrifice. If you look at Baal, if you look at Asheroth, if you look at Zeus, it doesn't matter who you're looking at as in, as far as uh, gods or idols, they're all to gain the same thing, some sort of fruitfulness. And they seem to revolve around those three things, sex, money, and power. So in this case, he says, look, when people, these this, these specific people, really all humans, when they rejected the knowledge of God that they had, it says that their, their conscience, it was seared. It says that they, and that's out of Timothy, it says that they... It became darker in their understanding. It says they became foolish or literally uh, stupid or inane in their, in their thinking and how they process things. And that's how we get, right? We're like, no, there's no creator. Actually, what happened is that lightning struck water on rocks after a giant spinning dot that wasn't visible got, exploded and created worlds. And, and it, we, so we have this truth now. And we say that this is actually the truth. And then we try to find things to justify that truth. And we say, see, look at the ice and how deep this ice is. And this ice, if you count it, it means this. Well, wait, how is there a World War II plane that is actually 3,000 years old in this ice? It's not. It actually formed over 40 years. So, you know, we have this, we come up, but we keep telling these things. We keep saying these things because we have to have some sort of truth that we can justify ourselves with and that we can justify others, right? And that just leads to a darkening and to a darkening. And then we ultimately end up in a place where we say there is no truth. Who can really know truth? And so what's okay for you is okay for you. And what's okay for me is okay for me. And then it's weird enough as human beings work, then as that kind of circles around, all of a sudden the, the serpent starts to eat its own tail. And now your truth is interfering with my truth. And now we don't like each other. And it's, it just it never ends. But that's how humans work. And so Paul says, hey, this people will be judged by God because of the, they rejected the light that they had. Now, if you recall, too, one of the major emphasis we've been trying to make here, and, and, and we'll get to why, and I feel a little bit repetitive, but, I, I, man, for, for my sake, just roll with me. I think it's very important. Paul is writing to believers, but he's speaking about unbelievers. This is very important and it's very important because if you do not acknowledge that, and we talked about that in the last couple of teachings, and, and so if you'd like to challenge that, I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards, or you can uh, get the teachings off our website or whatever. I think they're there. If not, ask Luke. But you know, we, can, we can go back and look at that. It's important because if you try to take these things where it says Jews, or it says Gentiles, or unbelievers, and then you morph that and say, well, he's actually talking about everybody, and Christians also, that what you come to is you come to this a legalistic works-based salvation. You come away from Ephesians 2, 8, right? That we've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you have to, and I call them this in our, we have a Bible communication class, and you and people who mean well they'll be teaching something, and they'll be teaching about salvation, and they'll come to kind of one of these verses, and, and they'll, they'll, we all know Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace, but they, they come to one of these where the wrath of God is revealed against all who do unrighteousness, and they go, well, well Christians do unrighteousness, and, and so therefore his wrath must be for them too. Neglecting 1 Thessalonians 5, who says he hasn't destined us for wrath. Neglecting 1 Corinthians 3, neglecting 2 Corinthians 5, and, and, and they're shrugged verses, and so they say, well, we're saved by grace through faith, but I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it just says his wrath is on the unjust, so you better be just or you're going to get his wrath. And I'm not trying to mock people or something like that. I think people mean well. They want people to be holy. They want people to follow God. They want people to, to not go towards sin. And I get that. But see, when, as Christians, we no longer sin against law. That's where we're going in Romans. That the law is no longer applied to the Christian. That's Romans chapter 7. That it served its purpose to drive us to Christ. And now the law doesn't apply to us anymore. But that that ultimately when we sin, it's not against law, it's against love. We sever relationship, we walk away from the Lord. That yes, we can be darkened and we can become ignorant in our thinking, but we're not talking about this. So as we read these things, if you, like me, come from a background of radical legalism because of the church you got saved into, do not read yourself into the passage other than there, there can be applications. You are not, if you, have, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not the unbeliever. You are not the Jew. You are you, believer in Jesus. And that's what we talked about in big time last week, is the fact that, yes, there is an impending judgment and condemnation upon every single human being that now or ever has consciously rejected Jesus. That is absolutely there. It is absolutely true that there will never be anyone who stands before the Lord and says, I did not know. I didn't know anything about this. Paul makes that very clear in chapter one that every person, every human being who has ever lived will be judged according to the light that they had. But when a person becomes a believer, what happens? They are forgiven. They're forgiven. That's very important to understand that that forgiveness, that sacrifice that was made by Christ, when he says, or it is finished or paid in full, that his our, that our unrighteousness and our sin was literally imputed to or placed upon. Remember, it says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus Christ literally paid the debt for our sin. That's why it's good news. That's why it's the gospel. If, 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 if Jesus was a down payment and then we had to make monthly payments and make sure we kept up on him to maintain our salvation, that would be bad news. How many of us would be in default? How many sins does it take to become in default if all of a sudden it's works that saves me? We have to be very careful with that. So I'm not trying to go on and on about the same thing here. But if you're like me and you have a background like mine, as soon as you read something like, upon everyone who does injustice, context goes out the window and you go, I knew it. I knew it was works. I knew I'm doomed. I knew everybody around me was doomed, especially that person over there. And now, right, that's where we go because we judge. So we're not going there this morning. Our context is Paul writing about the fact that every human being on the planet who has ever lived and rejects Jesus has condemnation and wrath pending for them. We're not trying to stick it to the man. We're not trying to cast out on people. It's a very, very crucial truth. It's crucial because it shows the broad and wide spectrum of God's salvation and just how much Christ paid for us and the freedom that we have in Christ because of what he did for us. We move away from religion and we come to love. We move away from law and we come to joy and peace. It's very important as we look into this. So as we dive into chapter two, we'll pick up here. In verse 6, which is, we covered this last week, but just for context sake. Remember, he's speaking of the unbeliever, and and we'll address this again. But he says, he will render to each one according to his works. Well, who are the people he's already talked about? The moral Gentile and the immoral Gentile and the ignorant Gentile. He says, render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness there will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality and you go oh are you twisting that are you trying to change that for what it's saying no number 1 we know that judgment is based on other things This is not a definitive statement on the only way God judges, is it? Because we also have verses that tell us He judges the heart. We have verses that tell us He judges the intent of the heart. So we're not taking these set of verses and going, aha, it's all by works, thus making 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 2, Romans 4, 5, and 6, Colossians 1, Colossians 4, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 2, and throwing them out the window. Basically, the whole rest of the Bible that tells us we're saved by grace through faith. So we don't take that now and throw it out the window and go, I knew it. It's works-based. No, it's those who seek. Who seek, And if you look there, will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek. Who's seeking? The only people that are seeking are people that know Christ. So their faith works something out, and they seek something, and then there is reward for that. There There is glory for that, as it were. But those are the people that are seeking. The people that are rejecting, if you, if you look at them, it says that they, they obey unrighteousness. They make decisions to obey unrighteousness, which is exactly what he described in chapter 1, right? People that, knowing God, rejected him as God and instead replaced, instead replaced the truth for a lie. So this is the culmination of his thoughts in chapter 1 to those unbelievers. Very important stuff. And last week we talked about, there is a judgment for Christians, but it's not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of purification. It's a judgment that, that removes from us that 1 Corinthians 3 fire that removes from us when we've built with wood, hay, and stubble. It tells us that that person shall be saved, the Christian that built on the foundation who is Christ, wood, hay, and stubble, or what we would say is worthless things. So if you build a worthless life as a Christian, it says that 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 worthlessness, that work will be tried, right? 1 Corinthians 3.10, will be tried as by fire, but he himself shall be saved. So if you build a worthless life, if you're a giant jerk your whole life, and as a believer, and as many of us are, and we die and we stand before the Lord, being a jerk can't come into heaven, can it? Jesus isn't gonna be like, oh, you treat everybody like poo on earth? Here, come on into heaven and do it here. No, sin can't come into the presence of God. So that will be burnt away. But you yourself shall be saved. Who will you be if you do not have the identity of being a jerk all the time? I have no idea. But that will be removed from you and you will be conformed to the image of Christ, right? That is our destiny from Romans chapter eight. You have been destined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That conforming, the question now is, will that conforming, how much will occur on this side of eternity and how much will be burnt from us in the next life, when we stand before the Lord. So we have a destiny. It's not to be wrath. It's not to be uh, unsaved. It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. So if we dive into this now and we look. What is he saying? He's saying, look, that there is an overall, he, he, his whole, uh, uh, I should say, the culmination of his whole thought is in verse 11. God shows no partiality. So the point of what he's just saying, because remember, he's talking to Gentiles and he's talking to Jew. Now, what do we know from Jewish history and from just biblical history and pretty much whether it's extra biblical and some of those historians, whether it's Justice Martyr or you know whoever you want to pick, or whether it's biblical history. And, and, and it, the fact is that Jews hated Gentiles. And we're actually going to see that in some of the language that Paul uses. It's translated very clinically and nicely in our English translations but when you look at what he's actually saying, there's some interesting Jewish slang that he uses about Gentiles. They hated Gentiles. We're speaking generally. I mean, obviously, there was probably some Jews that did not hate Gentiles. But for the most part, because of the extensive life of abuse from the Gentiles, the, the, first, the, the first or I should say the last 800 years before Jesus comes, they re- come to a point where like there's no way that God would ever save a Gentile. And we've talked about that. I don't want to be too repetitive. But as we dive into that, this is the background. He's now going to speak to, um, uh, there's going to be a short thought for the the moral Gentile, and then there's going to be a big thought that he settles on for the Jew. So if we look at verse 12, we start off here, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is an important foundational concept. This is what we've been talking about from chapter one. People of any generation, of any time, of any age, of any point in, in, in this world's history will be judged by what they knew. Those who sinned without the law, did you read that? For all who have sinned without the law, who are without the law? Well, the law, God's law is universal, right? And He's actually going to talk about that. It's a universal true. It's always true. But there are people that don't know the law. Especially as you get more and more in our history, and I mentioned this about a uh, story from some missionaries I knew in France, as we become a more post-modern, post-Christian world, there are very many people that they don't know the law. They don't know the Ten Commandments. Now, for a lot of us, that might seem like, ah, no, yeah, I mean, come on. As we move away from Christianity... As we move away from Christ, and as we move away from uh, the you know so many foundations we've had as a society ever since Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, that as we as we move away from those foundations, less and less people are going to be familiar with them, right? It just only makes sense. The more we reject, it shouldn't be surprising to us that in a world that that has striven to remove Christ in the last uh, at least a hundred years. I mean, obviously there's been strife and more intense in different areas, but globally for the last hundred years have looked to scour Christ from every possible uh, point in the world, it should not surprise us that there's people even today that are going to perish without the law. But people that perish without the law will be judged, they'll be condemned without the law. And he's going to explain that even further. But even though they didn't know the law, there'll still be judgment based on what they did and they did not know. And then he says, those who have sinned under the law, that those will be judged according to the law. So there, there's a judgment that, that is upon all human beings, which may seem like the bad news, and it is in a sense of bad news, but in a sense it's, it's justice. It's the, 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 the good news of that, or the reality of that, is that God will ultimately have justice, that, that every single human being will be subject to and fall under his jurisdiction eventually even though we have many references to Satan being the god of this world, right, little g, the god of this world, Uh, the whole uh, whole world lies in the arms of the wicked one, John would write to us, that Satan is at work and at move in this world today, eventually that will be sealed, that will be done with, and justice will be served to every single human being. And the great thing is, it's not our justice. It's God's justice, uh, which I think should be tremendously encouraging for us. Then he's gonna go on, he says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the, the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, this is exactly what we're talking about. What is our context? That God is not partial and that all will be under judgment, okay? Have you, and I have, and this is why I'm stopping here. I have many times in the past heard Christians pull this out. It's not the hearers of the law that are justified. It's the doers. And I think, and again, I think people mean well. And I think in part it's because James says something very similar, but very different. He says it's not the hearers of the word that are blessed. It's the doers of the word. And I think sometimes we swap it in our mind and we move away from context and we go, oh, see, look, it's the doers of the law that are justified. But remember, he's writing from a perspective that no one save Christ has ever or could ever be justified by the law because all sin and fall short. You know, that's I think children are the best example of that. Have you ever seen someone's child at one year old take a swipe at them? I have. My kids did it. Well, other people's kids, my kids did They were perfect. No, they did. My kids did it. Give me a binky. Is that a Snickers in your hand? What do you want? Or, or they try to turn their parents' head one way or the other. They try to exert their will upon someone. And like one year old. You know, I, I never said to my kid, I never sat him down and said, okay, you're one now. Here's what I want you to do. When you want something, I want you to punch me in the face, and that's how I will know. You literally have one-year-old children that are willing, all children. It's not just the All children are willing to exercise violence as a nature in order to get what they want. Isn't that wild? I mean, think about that. All you've done is nurture and love and care and swaddle and feed and wipe and everything else. And that kid says, I want my binky (laughs) Uh, because of sin. We cannot fulfill the law because from birth we're violent we're angry, we're liars. Did you ever teach your kid to lie? I'm gonna ask you a question and I need you to tell me what didn't happen in hopes that you'll get away with something. No, they just did it. We did it. One day our parents came home or something happened and we had drawn all over the wall or whatever we did and they're like, did you draw over the wall? And in our like four-year-old mind, we're like, I could say no. No, I did not draw on the wall. And then they ask that foolproof question, then who did? You were the only one here. And you're like, it was the boogeyman. It was my sister. You know, That's weird. Your sister's in high school. I don't think she'd draw on the wall. We just, we just did it. We just lied. right? It just came naturally. Nobody. We got better at it. We practiced it, some of us. And we realized, well, that didn't work. I have to come up with a more feasible plan that actually happened instead of me doing something wrong. So Paul is not saying here that there are those who will be justified by the law. There is not a human being, save Christ, who has ever or will ever live who could actually be justified by the law. So this is, this is, that's hyperbole. This, he's not saying that. He's making the point because he's bringing Jews into the conversation now, as we'll see in a couple of verses, and he's saying, just being someone who hears it does not justify you. That's what he just said, right? He said, those who know the law and break it, there's condemnation. There's punishment for that. And then he's furthering that by saying, just because you know it, there's no justification. There's no salvation in that. There's only justification if you could, if you did the law, the whole law. So he's really laying a platform here that human beings are hopelessly lost, and he's going to go on to, and, and talk about the Jew and the religious human. So he says there, he goes on, uh, he says uh, in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus. So now he says something about Gentiles. He says, when a Gentile does by nature what the law says, that that becomes a testimony against them. So he says, look, and probably some of us, maybe we were those people, or I bet every one of us in this room could say that we know someone who rejects Jesus but is so nice. They're so kind. In fact, you're like, are you sure you're not a Christian? Because I feel like you kind of have this kind of morality about you, you know, and, and, and they're, they're just so nice. And so Paul says when a Gentile, someone who doesn't have the law, acts in a way according to the law, what's happening is that the law. In other places he says it's written on their hearts that the law and what is known to be right and wrong in some cases is written for us on our own hearts. And he says that becomes a condemnation to us. We're doing that because we know intrinsically that it's right. And he's, he's going to talk about conscience more later on. But that our conscience bears witness to us even as those who have rejected Christ if that's where we're at in our life that that becomes a testimony that we sin against law because we know it's to be true. So when a person, a Gentile says, think about this, if there's no universal truth, if there really is no universal truth, and morality is subjective, meaning that, that it was, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to murder people, I don't know, pick something that has changed over the years, right? There's many things in our society today that are looked at as moral and good that 100 years ago were absolutely not. And some of those are very valid. I'm pretty sure it's still illegal in a Waco for women to wear skirts higher than their ankles. So some of those laws are not valid, right? Some of those are like, well, we should probably abolish that kind of stuff. So, so some things have changed because they were just ideas of, of human beings, most likely men in that case, but they were ideas of human beings that have changed. But it's also so with morality. If morality is subjective and things that we have for years believed to be sin because of the word of God, and now that's changing. It means that all morality is subjective. It has to. If there's no creator, and, these, and this was all spawned through, through chance and through bio, biological natural miracle, then there is no morality. I can kill you and take all your stuff and not morally be wrong, because my truth says it's okay, because I actually don't come from a moral place, if, if I try to claim that, right? There is absolute truth. And Paul says here, because there is absolute truth, there's just things that are true, the Gentiles will do those things. And and there, by doing those things, they acknowledge there's truth and they betray themselves. And and we do the same thing. I mean, this is not uh, outside of of our wheelhouse as far as how we accuse or excuse ourselves by our behavior or what we believe to be true. But he says that the Gentile, Paul says, by the Gentile that does that, that when Jesus Christ comes... That, that those um, uh, accusals or excusals will be made evident and that they'll be judged by Christ and secrets will come out. You know, I think one of the best secrets, and I want to be careful with this because it's, it's, it's a half-truth. Have you, ever, have you ever said to yourself or heard someone say, like, I love to do this soup kitchen or I love to serve at the church because it makes me feel so good. And really what that person is saying is, to, to an extent, it's not about serving you, it's about making me feel good. That we're so twisted and sinful and weird that we can actually do stuff for others, not because we just want to see them get blessed, but because we want to feel good. You know how we know that? Have you ever been to a soup kitchen and then fed someone and they were unthankful? How did we respond? That's cool. Right on, man. As long as you got your food. No, we're like... I'm on my day off. This is how you treat me? On my day off, I give you food, and you treat me like this? We respond with pride, and anger, and wrath. Because the truth of the matter is, if we were humble and somebody complained, we would think something more along the lines of, "Wow, I wish you could understand. You know, I wish you could absorb the blessing that's happening here." We'd be concerned for them instead. That's such, that must be a hard life to complain about free stuff. Not in sarcasm not in, 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 in trying to impute blame, but to truly look at another human being and to pity them for the reality of what a miserable life to complain about free food. If we were truly humble and we truly served just to bless the other, and in the name of Christ, when someone complained, we could go, you know what, man, that, that must be rough for you. Legitimately. That must be, the, uh, the Proverbs say the way of the wicked is hard. But we don't. We get upset, we get mad, and we go, I deserve thanks for this, not lip. This is crazy. Because we're fallen. It's who we are intrinsically. It's pretty wild when we start looking at really what we're really like. And Paul says when Christ comes back, that those secrets... For the unbeliever, right? We, the Christian is forgiven. It's under the blood. The Christian is judged by Christ and the, the wood, hay, and stubble is ripped away. The pride, the unthankful, that'll be burnt away. So we're not talking about this. There's condemnation to the sinner who walks that way. And so when Jesus Christ comes back to the unbelieving Gentile, that will be revealed. The secret. So all the people that we went, oh man, they're just so nice. God's gotta save that person. God says, No. Every person is condemned. Every single human being on the planet, you and I, were condemned. And Christ is the only way for that condemnation to, to leave us and to not be targeted upon us. He's the only way. So he says he's going to go on. And now he's going to really start to talk more about the Jew. And he says, if you call yourself a Jew, and again, forgive me, I'm going to stop here. Who are the Jews? They're the Jews! Is the church the Jews? No. Are the Jews the church? No. The Jews are the Jews, and they're not even under the old covenant anymore. They're under the new covenant. They still have the Abrahamic covenant, and God still has a purpose in them, and we'll read all about God's purpose that is coming to them in Romans chapter 11, and He will restore their land, and He will bless them, and there'll be some sort of work that happens in the life of the Jews as a nation. But this really interesting is this in this section, uh, in verse 17 and all the way through verse uh, 24, he said when he says you, when you yourself, you yourself, you yourself, it's all singular. So why does that matter? Because he's speaking to the individual Jew, not just as a collective people, but to the individual, because righteousness is is always an individual aspect. It's never a people. You don't go, well, I'm at church, so I just kind of like righteousness by proxy. But he's making the point here that you, if you say this, if you do that, not you, because you're not Jews, but to the Jews. Why say this? Because just like the last couple of verses, many times people have come to this point and they, they, we swap some, for some reason, whether it's bad teaching or just... I don't know why it is, sub, being subject to some weird thoughts, but we always, as soon as we read Jew, we go, oh, that's us. That's me, because they were God's people, and now I'm God's people, because I'm a Christian. No. Yes, you are God's people, but you're, well, I don't know your descent. Most likely, you're not a Jew. And if you are a Jew and you got saved, then you're a Christian. And you're still not a Jew, except by, by lineage. So this is really important that we don't now adopt this and go, well, he said Jews, so that must mean me. No, he didn't say believers. He didn't say Christian. He's making the argument of condemnation against Jews. And this would be very difficult for them. Well, it is for anybody, but specifically the Jew. He says, For if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So he says, if you are a Jew, call yourself a Jew, And you rely on the law and you boast in God. So you look at the law as your justification and you boast in who God is. means you exalt in or you appreciate God and you know his will and approve what is excellent. Approve what is excellent literally means if you've observed, measured, and accepted. It's a process. It doesn't mean it's like you went like, oh yeah, okay. But no, it's the idea that you observed it, you processed it, and you came out and said, yes, this is the truth. So he says, if you if you know his will, approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law uh, excuse me having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, excuse me, uh, you who boast uh, in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's making the point, remember, do you remember there's multiple times where Jesus is speaking to the Jews? And that would have been about... 50, 60 years before this is written. He's speaking to the Jews, and he says things, something like, uh, they, or they, I should say they, they tell him, hey, we're sons of Abraham. So we're, we're good. We're sons of Abraham. And he says, well, God is able of these stones to raise up sons of Abraham. And the, the point they're making is, no, we're well, one point they're making, they're actually insulting Jesus because they're, they're, they're saying, you don't know who your dad is. We know who our dad is. So they're, they're, they're insulting the, the, uh, uh, the fact that his father is the Holy Spirit. So uh, they, they don't believe the whole the, the thing with Joseph and Mary and all that. So they're insulting him in that way. But the second part of it is they're saying we're good with God because our identity is that seminally we're from Abraham. So we're good. They're saying because of proximity to Abraham and lineage that we're fine. So this is a regular belief in the Jewish system. You were born a Jew, you're gold-plated. You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And so Paul's saying, look, that's not how this really works. And that's what he's talking about. And so he's saying, if you esteem yourself as all these things, he's not saying every Jew, because there are definitely Jews that, that trusted Christ in a way that they should, the Jews that came to Christ. Or even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, there were Jews that were by faith righteous by God, and they were following the law and giving sacrifice when they couldn't. They looked forward to the Messiah coming. There were faithful Jews, not very many. Um, which, is a side note, if you remember, all the way back to when Elijah has you know, calls down fire from heaven, and, and, and the prophets of Baal, it's like the showdown at the Israel Corral or something, and they, they basically, after the prophets of Baal failed to call fire, and, um, and then Elijah does call fire down. The, the Israelis get all amped, and they kill all the prophets of Baal, like 450 prophets. And the next day, Elijah is running for his life because uh, oh, what's Jezebel basically sends him a note that says, hey, I'm going to do that to you by tomorrow. And so he bounces out and says, no, I don't want that to happen. And so he runs away. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny. It's, it is funny. It shouldn't be. But he, he, fall, he, he runs to be under a juniper bush, and he says, oh, God, just kill me because I'm, I'm just like my fathers. There's no one but me. And, and, and the encouragement that God gives him, besides you know, feeding him with crows and whatnot, but the, the encouragement that God gives him is he says, don't worry. There's 7,000 of my people that haven't bowed the knee to Paul. And you're like, wow, that's so cool. That's encouraging. 7,000 out of about 3 million. Yeah, not so encouraging. 3 million Jews, and God tells Tells him 7,000 haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I don't know what that percentage is because it feels like there's a lot of zeros behind the decimal point, but that's not a big percentage. So it's just kind of, there's, it's a remnant. There's a remnant of people that are following him. So there are, there are people that are, there are Jews that, that, that aren't like this. They're, they don't esteem themselves as a teacher of everybody and a know-it-all, and these kind of things. But he says if that's who you are as a Jew, if you're walking and you think well, because I'm a Jew and because I have the law and I approve the law and I do this and I do that, I'm golden, he's saying, no, no, not at all. That's not at all how this works. And he says, and he quotes, and he's making the point that this has always been happening because he quotes from Isaiah there in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's driving this point in and he's saying, no, it's always been this way. There's always been those of you who've relied on your Judaism rather than looking to God. And it's it's not a path of justification before God. He's going to push it even farther, and he says, "For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision?" And he's making the point about circumcision, because one of the things that Jews, obviously, from the New Testament, if you're familiar with it, they trusted in their circumcision. Hey, our dad's circumcised. He's the kind of the, the patriarch of the family. All the boys are circumcised. We had it done on the eighth day. The priest did it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they said, because of this circumcision, this is the token that we're right with God, that, our, that we're good Jews. Our family are good Jews. We're, we're right with God. And now Paul is, he's, and for us, we're like, okay, we probably understand the concept, but it's actually, I'm not saying he's trying to offend the Jews, but he's really pushing it in because it would really, the, the, our, our English is really nice about it. He says, for circumcision indeed is of value if obey the law, but if you break the law, literally says, your circumcision becomes a foreskin. So why is that insulting? Because Jews looked at Gentiles people with foreskins and they were disgusted with them. They absolutely rejected that God would have anything to do with them at all. That they were fuel for the fire of hell. So when Paul says to them, if you're circumcised but you're not following you're not looking to honor God, if we could put it that way, he says it's basically you're basically a gentile. That's what he's saying. You go, well, how do you know that? Because he does it again in verse 26. For if a man who is uncircumcised, again, this is our fancy English, it literally, Paul literally says, for if a, uh, for if a foreskin keeps the law. <laughs> that's what it says. He's, he's using a Jewish slang for Gentiles. They literally just called them foreskins. And so he's saying if a foreskin keeps the law to God, that's a person as if, He's circumcised. So he's literally telling Jews here, who he himself. Remember, he's not trying to be rude. He's not trying to be crude. He's trying to get through to them in their own language, with their own slang. As someone whose testimony is, remember Paul's testimony is, I would go to hell myself. I would be accursed, Paul says, if it means my brethren, the Jews, could be saved. So this isn't out of spite or anger or anything. And we're not trying to be inappropriate this morning. We're just saying this is what the scripture says. And here's the idea. Paul is saying if you're a Jew and you think the law will save you and you think that you can just do whatever you want because you have a snippety snip, you're wrong. And not only that, if you break the law and you're exactly like somebody who is a you are a Gentile. And let me tell you this, he says, if a Gentile is looking to honor God in his life through the law, that person is like a Jew. Remember, every single time Jesus ever like complimented a Gentile, the Jews tried to kill him. They would ape; they they, they couldn't handle it. So we're just reading this like, well, oh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. But any Jew that gets a hold of the, the letter to the Romans, it would be infuriating. Are you kidding me right now? This can't be. Is he trying to infuriate people? No, he's trying to demonstrate the stark reality of our condition, whether Jew or Gentile. Do you have the law? Do you not have the law? In this sense, it's irrelevant. He's going to talk about benefits of being a Jew in chapter three, and then later on, I think it's in chapter five, he's going to say there's no benefit to being a Jew. So there are certain benefits in like growing up with the law and these customs and so forth like that, knowing the, the, the true God. But ultimately, for justification's sake, there's no advantage to being a Jew if you ignore the light that you have. That's what he's saying. Now, is there application for Christians? In some respects, sure, right? If I claim to be a Christian, if I'm a believer in Jesus, but I'm suppressing what he wants in my life, it doesn't make me unsaved. It doesn't bring me into condemnation, right? Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But it brings me into a place of severing my relationship with God. Not severing forever, but cutting it off. Just like if I were to be rude to my wife. If we get home today and she makes my lunch and I go, I hate this, and I throw it on the ground. I've never done that. But if in the event that I did that, right, I asked for, I'll, I'll share a real story. Okay, this is, this is good. So uh, years and years and years ago, we had a couple that stayed with us. And a really nice couple, they were just trying to get back on their feet. And it was, it's kind of a long story, which I'm not going to share. But uh, the wife was like a super good cook. My wife is too amazing. I love her food. But his, she would make things like calzones and whatnot. And I remember I was we were sitting at home one night. We we're waiting for the the, the man to get the, the, the husband to get home. And he comes home and she the the wife had made this homemade calzone. And uh and and so he comes home and he's just like, What's with the calzone? And I was on the couch like. I know I shouldn't want to know what about, what's about to happen here, but I absolutely want to watch this. So said, <laughs> and so I just, I got this in this dilemma, like I should get off the couch and go into the room and just let them handle it. I didn't, so f- forgive me for that to this day. But he says, he says, what's with the calzone? And I'm like, what's happening. And, and she goes, oh, I, I made it for your dinner. And he goes, uh, on the phone, I said I wanted a turkey sandwich. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And she goes, well yeah, I guess I didn't really think about that and I thought you'd be blessed by a calzone. He's like, oh, I just really wanted a turkey sandwich. And I'm ready to be like, I'll eat the calzone. (laughs) I'll make you a turkey sandwich and I will eat the calzone, right? So you might imagine that from that time forward, there was some weirdness in the house for the rest of the night. They didn't have the best relationship. They were still married. There was still probably a love for one another, a care for one another. But in the moment, someone acted like a jerk and someone didn't. And there was a separation, wasn't there? And until the one who acted like a jerk said, you know what, I don't know what I was thinking. Thank you for the calzone. By the way, I never got to eat it, which is a little disappointing. But in the end, they did reconcile, which is probably better. So this, but the, the point is that that's, that's how Christianity works. We sin, but we don't become unsaved. We don't become, you know, but we, we, the relationship gets difficult. When we're walking in sin and rebellion, what is our prayer life like? What is, our, what is our investment in one another like? It declines. It suffers. So we can drive application from that. The, the truth is, if we're relying on our church attendance or our righteousness or whatever, our clean cars, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you want to put in there, how much you read the Bible, if we look to those things and say, well, God really is really proud of me because of this, we're missing the boat, aren't we? We're really missing the boat. We're right with God because of what Jesus did. Now can we walk in good works? Yeah, sure. That's the other part of Romans or excuse me, Ephesians 2:8, right in Ephesians 2:10. He's created us for good works to walk in, right That He created a time. So part of a new person in Christ, this person I become when I'm saved, is to walk in good works that God has foreordained for me to walk in. He calls us, he says, "We are His workmanship, literally the word there, His poema, his artistry. So our calling is still to walk in those good works, but it's not for righteousness' sake. It's for sake of relationship and building the kingdom's sake. Yes. So in this case, he's saying, look, every single person is condemned. We are not, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are not condemned. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, it's the, it's, it's the truth in love. You are storing up wrath for yourself, and you will be judged if you reject the one that took the wrath for you. If you insist on pushing Christ away from you as an unbeliever and rejecting him and and his approach and his desire for your life, then God will honor you and he will deliver you ultimately to the one place in the eternal realm where he is not, the lake of fire. Do you know what makes hell hell? That, That None of God's goodness is there. None of his presence are there. There's no trees there. There's no music there. There's no poetry there. There's no art there. There's no hikes there. There's no observing. There's no exercise there. There's, there's, no, there's nothing. There's no entertainment there. There is nothing there because anything that is good is withdrawn from that place. That's why hell is hell. It's not just punitive. It's just literally a place where there is no goodness. And if you think, if you're not a believer in Jesus today and you think about what your heart is like when it's angry, when it's proud, when it's, when it's lustful, when it's, it cannot be satiated, when it's deceived, that will be the state that you will dwell in forever. That's what makes hell hell. That's why there's gnashing of teeth. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ today, if you've never invited him into your life today, we want to invite you, not out of spite or anger or trying to be Republicans or whatever. We just want to invite you to know Jesus Christ yes, amen. and to receive him as your Savior. Because he alone is the source of life and the cure for our hearts. The Lord loves you. Mm -hmm. He finishes up here, absolutely. And he says there, But the Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, true circumcision, and in other places he says, it's, it's a circumcision of the heart. True circumcision is not just something on the outside of a, a member of your body, but it's something where you say, I'm willing to let go things from the inner. I'm willing to, wait, to let God work in my heart. I'm willing to let him have my heart. He says that's what true circumcision is. And that's done by the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? The letter cannot circumcise the heart. Just roll with that. The letter cannot circumcise the heart. The law cannot change you. It is unable. In Hebrews, it's called weak. We know it's perfect, and not one jot or tittle will pass away. Jesus told us that. But Paul tells us it's weak. Paul tells us that it's unable to make a person righteous. It cannot change you. All it can do is maybe change your behavior because you don't want to incur penalty, but ultimately it can only show you how broken you are. And that's what its job is. In Galatians, he tells us, he says, the law came as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, to lead us to grace. So the circumcision of the heart, meaning a person who allows Christ to work, or God in whatever context you want to ask, to work in their heart, it never comes by the law. You know what? Having a schedule and organizing a morning time, it is an excellent plan if that's what God leads you to do. It cannot change your heart. It can't. If you get up every morning and you go, I'm going to read the Bible because God told me to. it's It's a good practice, but that attitude, your heart probably won't change. Now, God is so amazing. He's so merciful. And sometimes we just do stuff because we feel like we have to. And then he speaks to us. And it wasn't the letter of our schedule that changed us. It was the fact that he honored the fact that we moved forward and read his word. And then his word changed us. Because yeah. hopefully none of, none of us would ever say, like, I am the person I am today because of my schedule. All <laughs> right? We would say, I am the person that I am today because God is merciful right. and he's changing me. And so we could say, well, how did that happen in your life? You say, well, I did this crazy thing. I started reading the Bible. It was nuts. I just said, you know what, this morning, I'll spend five minutes. I'll spend five minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll read this, I'll read that. I'm not trying to mock people. I'm just saying that sometimes we can get so overwhelmed because the Bible, certain parts are difficult to understand. And we can get overwhelmed by that. But when, it's oftentimes in taking baby steps, little steps. Saying, right, I'll, get in the, I'll get in the Word today. I'll skip Facebook while I'm drinking my first cup of coffee and I'll read a psalm today. That can be an incredible victory in your life. You go, that's pretty dramatic. No, it's true. Because if you get on Facebook, what are you going to see? You're going to see that Democrats suck or that Republicans suck, right? That's what the, the bulk of what Facebook's going to be. It's, it's the bulk of it. Sometimes there's really cool stories and inspirational stuff, but I don't know what your feed is like. That seems like to be like the 5%. Because most of the other 95% is typically rage or weird ads. You're like, I don't know how I got this ad. I, do I look like I play basketball? I don't know why you're trying to sell me Nikes, right? Not going to happen. So, but, but the other part, so when you actually go away from... All that stimulus, the scrolling, how, the frustration that comes from that scrolling, when you, the, the gossip that comes from that, the judgment that comes from that. I mean, think about all the emotion and different things you experience when you're scrolling through Facebook. Some of it is positive, we, we have to say. Or, or Instagram, or I don't have an Instagram, so I don't really know what's on there, but you know, some other outlet, right? I think it's pictures on Instagram, if I'm not mistaken. But if you, go, if you, were to, if you think of all the things you experience emotionally, what if he just didn't do that for five minutes? And instead you read like, blessed is the man whose iniquity is forgiven to whom the Lord imputes not his sin in Psalm 32, right? Or, or if you read Psalm 1 about the one that, that listens to God and they're like a tree that bears fruit in every single season, every month. Imagine if we substituted the living word for so many other things. I, I, if that's not you and you read Facebook, and I mean this sincerely, and it's a blessing to you and you're edified by it, then God bless you in that. I know for me, every time I look at it, every time, you can ask my wife, we sit there and we watch TV at night, usually we settle down with a, an episode or so of, of some television show, right? And uh, that's my time, I like scroll, and I'll just be like, I just put my phone down, like, ah. Oh. And then I don't know, I'm, I'm a moron, because then I'll be like, oh, ah, like, oh. You know? <laughs> Maybe this time it'll be dead. No, it's still not. People still hate each other. This is so weird. Right? So I'm not trying to like poo-poo social media per se. I'm just trying to say that a small investment into your spiritual life can reap unbelievable rewards. But it's not the law. It's the spirit. It's not the letter. It's it's, It's not because you have to. It's just basically opening yourself up to the living word and what's there. And we we have the opportunity for that. So then he says, ultimately he says, the person of the heart, right? The person who's who's circumcised inwardly, circumcised heart by the spirit, it says his praise is not from man, but from God. Isn't that a wild thought? That's a really wild thought to me. That God has praise for you. I'm not trying to make it about us like, like, oh, we're super important. We are important. I mean, Jesus died for you. It's a weird dichotomy, isn't it? On the one hand, excuse me, I'm completely lost. And hopeless in my sin. On the other hand, we are of infinite value, and you're worth the blood of his son. It's pretty wild that intrinsically God says, You, that in fact, in the wording there, like in Isaiah 53, right, is the idea that he says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. I mean, can you imagine that? That God looked upon the suffering of his son, and he was satisfied by that. that he, was, he was pleased when, when Christ was crushed. Not because he's a masochist or it's a bad family unit or something, but because he looked at, the father looked at what the son was was going through. In fact, what the father inflicted upon him in judgment for our sin. And it pleases him because he redeemed you and me. So there is a praise that comes from God where he looks upon you and he says, I'm so happy that, that you're accepting me. I'm so, I'm so happy. It, it gives him joy mm-hmm. to be able to to uh, converse with you. It's so wild that the eternal would find joy in us, mm-hmm. that the the one who created everything and all everything that's ever been good, and yet he can still find joy with us. The find the, the fact that the one who has all the wisdom, who invented wisdom, can find you and I interesting to talk to. Mm-hmm. It's wild. So he's, Paul here, in closing, what is he doing? He's laying out for the next three chapters, and he's saying every single human on the planet has nothing to hold to for righteousness or rightness or being right or justified in front of God except what God provided. And then any other attempt and any other pride or any other uh, assumption about how we get there is futile and destructive. That's what he's saying. And he's going to finish it in, in 3, 23, which the goal will be to get there next week, that everyone us have sinned. So what do we do with that? We appreciate how broad and how wonderful our salvation is. That if that's our true standing, and the true standing of every human on the planet, and he's going to go on, and it gets rough. I mean, I don't know if you've read chapter 3 or not. It gets roughed. There is none that seek God. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He says, Paul says, I'm describing you. I'm describing every human being. And to think that these people, that that God says, this is where you were at as humans, that he says, but I love you so much, I redeemed you, if you want it, if if you want to accept it. That's how we look at this. We just rejoice in that even though we were so fallen, that we've been lifted so high, that even though we were so hopeless, that we've been given so much, And so the next time you're feeling bummed out or you're feeling like, can God love me or is there hope? The answer is unilaterally, yes. Mm -hmm. He does love you. He loves you so much. Mm -hmm. He loves you in your failure. He doesn't love your failure, but he loves you in it. He cares about what's going on in your life. He wants to see you succeed. I'm not talking health wealth here. I mean, he wants to see you be blessed. Mm -hmm. He wants to see you uh, be fulfilled in your relationship with him. He's for you. Hebrews tells us not only is God for us, we have a great cloud of witnesses. Like the idea there's like everybody who went before us, all the believers that died before us, people that were burnt at the stake, thrown to the lions and everything in between or died in their sleep. They're all in heaven going, yes! (laughs) It's a witness. Like it's worth it. It's going for it. You got this. Go for it. You know, We have a great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded. It's as if all heaven is resounding. Don't give up. Paul ultimately says there in Galatians 6, and we'll close with this. He says, he says, do not grow weary in well-doing, knowing that if you faint not, you shall reap. And this is the truth. You know, a lot of times we, just, we want to stop sowing. It's easier to not sow, isn't it, to the Spirit. It's easier to just give up. It's easier to say, I'm going to turn on Netflix because I'm tired. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I don't want to deal with this. You know how I know that? Because that's what I do. (laughs) I'm preaching to myself here. It's so easy for me to just get lost in entertainment or do this rather than deal with things. And and instead, when we we move forward, we take that small step, knowing that it's the right thing to do, what God's calling us to do, it's amazing what the Spirit does in that step of faith. We could go on. I think that's the illustration of uh, you know the the Centurion in Capernaum, the illustration of the woman who touches his garment, the illustration of the man at the well, he just says, "Pick up your bed and walk they 're all illustrations of small points of faith of contact with Jesus that he honored he honored tremendously, and it hasn 't changed he 's still doing those things today, so why don 't we pray and uh, if you 'd like to pray or talk about something we 'll be up here afterwards, but uh God bless you, Father, thank you for your great grace and kindness and Lord. I thank you that you saved us from such a wretched place. Lord, that you have been merciful and kind, that you've never dealt with us according to our iniquities, but Lord, that you have uh, cleansed us, forgiven us. Thank you for our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for your heart for us. Lord, I pray a blessing on these folks, that you would be with them, speaking to them, encouraging them, convicting them, Lord, I pray, too, that you would give us divine appointments this week for people in our communities, to talk to them, to give them the gospel, to love them, to show them who you really are. Lord, you're very kind, and we appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.